The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, the 24th verse. The 24th verse in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. I would perhaps better remind you of the context. So I will read again from the beginning of the 21st verse to the end of the 24th verse. But I had pity for mine holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. We come back to this uh, great statement which is made here in this uh, chapter, this 36th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy. Uh, the statement begins, you remember, at verse 16 and goes on right to the end of the chapter uh, to verse 38. Now, it's uh, one of those statements which we find uh, scattered about so freely in the scriptures, Old Testament and New in which God addresses mankind. Here, the particular address is delivered to the children of Israel, God's own people. And the circumstances that called for it, you remember, were these. These children of Israel, because they had disobeyed God and had forgotten him and had profaned his holy name in their own land of Canaan, which he had given to them, had been thrust out of it. An enemy had arisen and had attacked them and had conquered them, destroyed their city and had carried the people away captive to Babylon. And there they are, sitting by the waters of Babylon, captives, slaves, far away from their own country, in utter helplessness and hopelessness. And that, as far as they were concerned, might very well have been the end of the story. They might have lingered on for a few years, but gradually their oppressors and captors would have destroyed them and they would have ceased to appear at all on the field of history. But we know that that isn't the case and it, wasn't the, and it isn't the case because of what God has done. That's why I went back again to this 21st verse. And there we saw last Sunday evening that God, as it were, introduces the gospel. And he makes certain things very plain and clear. He says, I am going to deliver you. I am not going to deliver you because you deserve it. I am not doing it because of any worthiness or righteousness in you. I am doing it entirely for mine own namesake and moved by nothing but mine own eternal love. I'm doing it as it were in spite of you, but I'm going to do it. We saw, therefore, that that's something which we must always hold on to. Furthermore, we saw that God in doing this displays the glory of his holy nature. And finally, we saw that it is absolutely certain because it is God who is doing it. Now then, that's the message as it was delivered to the children of Israel. And you remember how a remnant of them were brought back from Babylon to Jerusalem. The city was built again, the temple was built again, and the children of Israel were back in their own land. There are those who believe that there's to be a still greater fulfillment of this. Very well, I have no quarrel with you at all. It may well be the case 
But of this I am certain, and this is why I am calling attention to it, that whatever may be actually true of the children of Israel as such, this is a message that goes well beyond the children of Israel. And to see nothing in this but a particular prophecy about Israel is really to miss its central glory. This is a specimen, a sample, an illustration of what God in Christ is doing for the whole world. It's a great statement of the gospel. And that is why we are analyzing it and going through it like this, step by step and stage by stage. You see, God raised up the children of Israel to be an object lesson. That's why he called them. That's why he called Abram and turned him into a nation. It wasn't only for their sakes. How often does God tell them that? Their fallacy was to think always that it was something innate in them that called forth this action of God. But God tells them, no, no, I'm really doing it in order that I may use you for my own great end and purpose. So the children of Israel are the great object lesson held before us. And that's why we should thank God for the preservation of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament documents. And through them, God is speaking to all of us. He's speaking to the modern world this evening. And what is he saying? Well, exactly what he's telling, what he told the children of Israel here. The world tonight is sitting by the waters of Babylon. The world is in distress. The world is in a state of misery and of unhappiness. And why? Well, we've already been given the answer. It's because of sin. No, it's no use. It's no use going on with the consideration of the gospel until we are clear about that. The world is as it is at this moment because mankind, like the children of Israel of old, has turned against God profaned his name, ignored him, gone its own way. That's why the world is as it is. Sin, this thing that's so hateful in God's sight. You remember the prophet uses this language. He says, Thy way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Horrible, foul, filthy. If only we had some glimmering of an understanding of what our sinfulness is in the sight of God, we'd be filled with terror and alarm, and we would hate sin with the whole of our being. It's our blindness to the truth about sin that enables us to continue as we are. That's the first thing. And then you remember God's hatred of it and God's wrath upon it. God's punishment of sin. He had told these people from the very beginning that if they didn't obey him, he would throw them out of their own land, and he did. And there they are, I say, by the waters of Babylon. Very well, the whole of the human race tonight is in that selfsame position. And is there any hope for it? We see the mess, the squalor, the unhappiness. We see how it baffles all statesmanship, makes all philosophy look rather futile and ridiculous. All acts of Parliament designed to put us into a perfectly ordered state of a society come to nothing. We try education and culture, but still the problem remains. And there's all this bother and all this unhappiness. Is there nothing that can be done for us? Is there no hope? Well, now it's exactly there the gospel comes in. That is the first glorious thing about this. In spite of all that is true. I had pity, says God, on mine holy name which the house of Israel had profaned. Oh, it was when all was sin and shame that the second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. Oh, loving wisdom of our God. When all was sin and shame, the second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. It's always like that. 
Don't you remember that it was after the 400 years of silence, after Malachi, when there seemed to be no word from God at all. It was when everything was down and out that the fullness of the times had come and God sent forth his own son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. Oh, that's the glory of it all. So I would say once more, we spent our evening on it last Sunday evening. If you and I, as we look at this gospel, don't see it primarily as an amazing display of the glory of God's holy, wonderful being and character, we really don't know it at all. That is why any view of the gospel that represents it as just a little bit of morality or niceness or goodness is an insult to the name of God. The gospel is God's. It's entirely his. From the original thought and inception to the last detail of its carrying out. It's all his. And to the praise of the glory of his grace. It was according to his own determinate counsel and foreknowledge that he's done everything. He does all, says Paul to the Ephesians, according to the counsel of his own eternal will. Why is there a gospel to preach tonight? Is it as the result of the plea of man? Not at all. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Who has given anything to him? Nobody, nothing. It is entirely and only and always of God. Very well then, we start there and then we come on to see this. What the gospel actually does for us. You notice how the prophet kept us there with that magnificent statement of it as a concept. But then having done that, he now comes on and tells us in this 24th verse exactly what the gospel does for us. And first of all, he puts it as a whole. He states it, as it were, with a broad perspective. He shows us the beginning and the end. And then after that, in verse 25 and following, he'll come back and he'll pick it up in detail. He'll show us the various steps and stages and all the things that are essential to us in order that we might receive the fullness of this blessing. But here it is in its essence. What is God doing in salvation? Here it is. I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you back into your own land. That's salvation. Now, here I think we are reminded of the great notes of the gospel. Here are these big things in connection with it. And I'm calling attention to it because, oh, more and more it seems to me that all the trouble is due to these foolish, wrong, preconceived notions and ideas that we all have to te tend to have by nature of this gospel. But above everything else, what we fail to see is its greatness, the very thing that is shown here so plainly and so clearly. Why is it that everybody isn't praising God tonight? Now, we all joined together at the beginning, didn't we? This is what we sang. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Did you mean it? Were you honest as you sang it? You know, there are times when I'm a bit nervous about this hymn singing. It can at times be awful lying. It can be sheer hypocrisy. But we sang it, didn't we? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. What will my great Redeemer's praise? The glories of my God and King. The triumphs of His grace. It's so terrific. One tongue isn't enough. I need a thousand tongues. But do we really feel that? Have we so seen the gospel as to feel the need of a thousand tongues instead of one? Well, I let every man answer for himself. 
Let every man examine himself. Let us all ask ourselves soberly, have I seen the gospel in those terms? Well, if you haven't, I'll tell you why you haven't. There are only two reasons, only two explanations. One is, you've never known what the real depth of sin is. And the other is, you've never known what the height of salvation is. That covers it all. The depth, the height. And it's this distance between the depth of sin and the height of salvation and of glory that constitutes this wondrous thing. Out of the lands of the heathen into your own country. Well, now let me try to hold this before you briefly this evening. Let's try to assess, let's try to measure, let's try to compute this tremendous gospel that demands such praise and such thanksgiving. The first thing that we are told here about it is this, that nothing less than the power of God could achieve it. I put it like that deliberately. Nothing less than the power of God can make anybody a Christian. Let's put it in that form. The trouble is, I say, that we don't realize truly what a Christian is. I'm not going to waste your time tonight by reminding you of what passes so often as a definition of a Christian. Oh, they're so trivial. Accident of birth, whether you're born in this country or some other country. Whether you were brought up to go to chapel or not. Whether your name was put in a church book when you reached the age of adolescence. Those are the things. Ah, whether you were christened as a child, I'd forgotten that. And so on and so forth. These are the things we are told that make us Christian. And that is Christianity. You don't need a thousand tongues to sing about something like that. But that isn't the gospel. The gospel tells us at the very beginning that nothing less than the power of God can do it. Listen, I will take you from among the heathen. And why is God doing it for this reason? Nobody else can do it. It is he alone who has the power and the strength to do it. No man makes himself a Christian. It doesn't matter how good you live, how many vows you may take. You can go out of business and segregate yourself from society and become a monk or a hermit or an anchorite. You can live on a mountain and you can become a Trappist monk if you like and never speak again and spend the whole of your life in fasting, sweating and praying and put all your energy into it and you'll never make yourself a Christian. It's impossible. And if you could harness and engage all the ability of all the world with you to try and make you a Christian, the whole of mankind couldn't do it either. God alone can make a man a Christian. I will take you. It's the God who thought of it for his own namesake who does it. There is a wonderful statement of this which I will put to you at the same time. Those who are familiar with the epistle to the Ephesians will know this, that the apostle Paul in that epistle tells us very plainly and explicitly that the power that is necessary to make any individual a Christian is exactly and precisely the power that God used and employed when he raised the Lord Jesus Christ again from among the dead and from the grave. Nothing less. Now, had we realized that? You see, this is a pivotal point at the beginning, isn't it? Is it an easy thing to be a Christian or is it the most difficult thing in the world? According to Paul, it's the most difficult thing in the world. For we were dead in trespasses and sins and nothing but a resurrection power can raise us up. Oh, the Apostle Paul had no doubt about this. Do you remember that resounding statement? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. 
And he knew that nothing else would do as he confronted the paganism of Rome, the capital city, and knew of the filth and squalor and vileness in which people lived. He knew that nothing less than the power of God could raise men out of such degradation. But he knew that it could. It's the power of God, my friends. I will take you. This is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. What makes a man a Christian is that the Holy Spirit works in him. Works in the very foundation and vitals of his soul and of his being. You've been watching the building that's been going on in London since the war, haven't you? The bomb sites. The machines that they bring along these tremendous grabs that take hold of the rubble and throw it away. It would take years perhaps for men, but they come and they dig into the depths and they clear the site and the foundation. Oh, the power that's being manifested, that's the power that's needed when the Holy Spirit comes to us and begins to deal with us as we are. The wreckage and the rubbish and the rubble that's got to be removed and cleared out and then... The might and the strength and the energy in the building. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, having preached to the Thessalonians a little bit later on, writes a letter to them and he says, You know, our gospel came unto you not in word only, but in power. And in the Holy Ghost. And with much assurance. And so he says, you see, in writing to the Corinthians, that he determined not to know anything among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I decided not to come and address you on philosophy. I could have done so. I didn't come to talk to you about various matters in which I knew you took a very great interest. It would be of no value at all. I determined not to know anything among you to save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my preaching and my teaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom. He could have done it. And you know, there was tremendous energy in the Apostle Paul. He'd got a master mind. And he could reason and argue and manipulate his logic. And when he wanted to be, he could be eloquent and moving. We've got evidence of it in his epistles. And he could have harnessed all this energy and power and trained it upon them. But he didn't do it deliberately. Why? Well, because he knew perfectly well that if he'd done that, not a soul would have been saved. Not an individual would have been converted. They would have gone away praising the Apostle Paul as a marvelous philosopher and teacher and preacher. But they would have remained in the bondage of sin. No, no, he says. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, it's the same everywhere. I will take you. Has the Holy Ghost been dealing with you? Have you been aware of the movement of the Spirit of God in your soul? Do you know what it is to be shaken? What it is to be convicted? What it is to be filled with terror and alarm? Do you know what it is to feel desperate about yourself? That's the sort of work he does. And when he comes, he shakes men. He's even shaken buildings. There's an account of it in the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. How the very room in which they were met together praying, the walls were shaking. The power of the Holy Ghost. That's the thing. The power manifested in all revivals. It's the same power that saves every individual soul. And nothing else can do it. Nothing less is of any value. You see, you don't become a Christian by taking a decision. You may have to take a decision. It isn't that that saves you. It's the work of God. It's the power of God. It's the energy of the divine spirit. Ah! Has God been dealing with you? Do you know what it is to know yourself in the hands of God? 
Have you felt the fingers of your Creator again taking hold of you, smashing you and, bra and breaking you and then remaking you? It's His work. I. It's I. Read this paragraph for yourself uh, when you go home at your leisure and you'll notice that He does everything from beginning to end. But come, let me note the second matter. And, of course, it follows from what I've been saying, and that is the completeness of the change. I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. You see the movement, you see the change. I read that word to you out of the first chapter of the epistle to the Colossians where Paul puts uh, the same thing there uh, when he talks of our being taken from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, here again is a very fundamental and vital principle in connection with this whole matter of salvation and of becoming Christian. It is the completest, the profoundest and the greatest change that the world ever sees or knows. Oh, my dear friends, if we could but see this. To become a Christian doesn't mean a little bit of improvement or that you're a little bit better than you were before or a little better than somebody else. That you're not committing so many sins or you're not committing that one sin quite so frequently. No, no. It's a complete change. It's an entire change in our status, in our position, in our standing, in our condition. You see, before it does anything else to us, this gospel of salvation puts us into an entirely new position and introduces us into a new relationship. That's the thing that's emphasized here. What sin does, of course, is to put us in a wrong relationship. We're in the wrong place. The trouble with the children of Israel was that they were in Babylon instead of being in Canaan. And what is salvation? Well, taking them out of Babylon, putting them back into Canaan. Need I keep you with this point? The New Testament is full of it. What is to become a Christian? Well, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's being born again. Not being improved a bit, you see, but being born again. You've got to go back to the beginning. That's the thing that stumbled poor Nicodemus. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, don't understand it, you can't, said our Lord to Nicodemus. But it is like that. It's a new beginning. Rebirth. Regeneration. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If you like, he is a new creation. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath, come, hath shined in our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's happened to me, says Paul, I'll tell you, he says, it's exactly what happened when God created the world. Over the chaos, the Holy Spirit was brooding, and God said, let there be light, and order came, creation followed. That's what's happened to me. I'm not simply a little bit better. I'm new. I'm a new creation, a new man in a new world. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Out of Babylon, into Canaan. Do you know anything about this translation? Do you know anything about this movement? Do you know what it is to be entirely different in your whole fundamental attitude, in your whole status and standing and position? That's Christianity. Now, it's not only what we find in the Scriptures. It's what's confirmed throughout the long history of the Church in the lives of all the saints. This is the thing that happened to your Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and all the rest of them. This is it. This movement. 
I'm not myself. I'm not the man I was. There's something happened. I've been entirely changed. And the thing I'm emphasizing is the completeness of the change. Nothing can be bigger. But let me hurry on to give you the details. If there are the principles, what is it that happens to us in detail? Well, here he puts it like this. The first thing we obviously need is deliverance. The children of Israel, you see, were in Babylon, as I say, instead of being in Canaan. Yes, but on top of that, they were slaves. They were captives. They were entirely under the dominion of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who'd got them absolutely in their grip. And they were helpless. They needed deliverance. They needed to be brought out to be taken out of their captivity. I like to think of that like this. You know, the real trouble with the unbeliever, the man who is not a Christian, is this. That he is not in his right place. He is not where he, where he was meant to be. Where was man meant to be? Man was meant to be in paradise. We were never meant to be in the world as it is today. We were never meant to be living the sort of life we are living. We were never intended for it. As the Israelites were never meant to be in Babylon, but were meant to be in Canaan. Man, I say, was meant to inhabit paradise. God put him there and he meant him to be there, but he isn't there. Man is eccentric, if you like. He's away from home. He's like the parable in the far, like the prodigal son in the far country. Or to sum it up, I can say this, that man is outside the position of God's blessing. And therefore he needs to be delivered from it. Well, what is it in detail he needs to be delivered from in this eccentric position? The first thing I'm told he needs to be delivered from is this. I will take you from among the heathen. Here they are, among the heathen. What does that represent? It represents godlessness. And what is godlessness? Well, godlessness is an ignorance of God and all God's ways and all God's blessings. What is a heathen? He's a man who doesn't know about God. That's why he is a heathen. And that is where sin has put us all. It's put us among the heathen and in sin we are in heathen darkness. We are in ignorance. Isn't that how the gospel tells us about, the, uh, about how the message of salvation comes? The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. The people who are in ignorance, you see. The darkness of ignorance. Here it is all in our picture. The children of Israel among the heathen who don't know God and are worshipping idols. And that's the first thing the world needs to be delivered from this evening is its ignorance about God. Why are people living as they are today? There's only one answer. They don't know God. Why are they enjoying drink and gambling and sex and all these perversions and these other foul things? I'll tell you, it's tragic. It's just this. They don't know what it is to enjoy God. And there's no other explanation. It's because men don't know God and enjoy him that they turn to these other things. It's this appalling darkness and ignorance. Heathen! They don't know anything about the greatness of God. They don't know anything about the power of God. They don't know anything as we've seen about the wrath of God. If men but knew about God and his holiness and his law and his wrath, they'd never sin again. The thought of it would be terrifying, alarming, but they don't know it. Ah, oh, they say, there isn't a God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. 
Don't listen, they say. It's all right. Carry on. I've defied him for years. Nothing's happened to me. I'm having a good time. All is well with me. On they go in darkness and ignorance about God. But all their ignorance of his love and his mercy and his compassion, they regard him, if they believe in him at all, as a tyrant, an ogre, one who's set against them and who hates them, and who just delights in robbing them of all that is good and wonderful. There they are with this darkness, and they need to be delivered out of it. And it's the gospel alone who can deliver them out of it, yes, but heathendom doesn't stop at just an ignorance of God. It's accompanied by many other things, isn't it? The poor heathen lives in fear and terror. He's a victim of superstitions. And he makes his gods of wood and stone and metals and he worships them. There's nothing more appalling about the ignorance of heathendom than its fears and its phobias. And the world tonight is full of these things. Men are reading their fortunes in the Sunday papers. They'll listen to an astrologer. They'll stake their future on a fortune teller. They're clutching at anything that seems to give hope. They're afraid of life, afraid of what's going to happen. They don't know where they are. Fears and phobias, heathen darkness. Men are in the grip of it, and they don't know where they are. They'll believe anything. They'll set up any kind of God and bow down before him. Why? Because they don't know, and they don't know God especially. Oh, yes, but there's something else that always accompanies that. And that is, of course, the slavery that always goes with it. The heathen are slaves to sin. Have you read the missionary reports? Have you read especially the accounts of the pioneer missionaries in the last century? They went among the heathen and they found they were cannibals. They found they were sunk to such depths that they were almost worse than animals and beasts. All the perversions and the foulness and the squalor of it all, that's the result of godlessness and this ignorance concerning him. And it's true in the world tonight. You were the quickened, says Paul, to the Ephesians who were dead in trespasses and sins, who walked according to the God of this world, the course of this world, the spirit, the power of the air that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby in nature the children of wrath, even as others. There it is, and it's still true. This darkness, this life among the heathen, it leads to that sort of existence, the way of the world, the thing to do, the round of pleasure. And all that you see in your newspapers tonight, all that is happening in this city at this very moment, and will happen as the hours go on, the drunkenness, the fighting, the hatred, the jealousy, the envy, the lust, the inordinate affections, all the foulness of it all, it all accompanies this heathen darkness. That's what man needs to be delivered from. He's the slave of sin. He is the slave of the devil. And, of course, the other thing I must add is this. He, because of all this, is totally incapable of ever arriving at a knowledge of God. He's not allowed to. The children of Israel were captives. They had no arms. They could do nothing. If they made any attempt, it would be quelled. That's man dead in trespasses and sins, and he can't move. Outside his own country. Far away from God and outside the blessings of God. Oh, that's the depth of sin. That's where man is and he needs, I say, to be taken out of it, to be rescued. But God says, I will. I will take you from among the heathen. 
He enters in in Christ by the Spirit and he tackles the power that is controlling and he removes him. He destroys him. He takes the strong man armed and robs him of his armor wherein he trusted and sets his captives free. Do you see now why I emphasized at the beginning that nothing less than the power of God can do it? We all know what it is to try to break a habit or a sin, don't we? We know what it is to take New Year's resolutions and not keep them for a week. We've said we're going to be better. We've signed pledges. We've done a thousand things and it's all ever come to nothing. It needs more than men. It needs God. And the gospel, I say again, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. He can set us free and take us from among the heathen and gather us out of the lands where we've been held captive. And what then? Well, he restores us. There's the end of it. And I will bring you into your own land. Oh, I like this. The gospel brings us back to the place where we were meant to be and where we ought to be. You know, I see this everywhere in the Bible. Do you remember what happened when men sinned at the beginning in the Garden of Eden? God made him perfect. There are Adam and Eve in the Garden, walking in the Garden. They hear the voice of God and they run to him always. That was normal. That is the normal condition of men. But men fell into sin and disobedience. And God comes down into the garden and he doesn't see them. And the first question he asks is this, he must. Adam, where art thou? He's somewhere where he oughtn't to be, you see. It's always the effect of sin. It makes him eccentric, as I say. Where are you? God comes after him. He wants to call him back. You've got the corresponding thing in your New Testament. Again in the parable of the prodigal son. When that poor fellow came to himself. You remember what happened? This is what he said to himself. How many hired servants of my father have bread enough? You see, it meant this. He suddenly woke up in the fields with the swine. And he said, what am I doing here? What's my father's son doing in this country at all? And still less in a field with swine and husks. I'm not at home. I've become eccentric. I'm in a place where I was never meant to be. Here I am. There is home. I ought to be at home. And he arose and he went to his father. He just went home. I will take them from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries. And I will bring you back into your own land. What is to become a Christian? Well, it's just to come home. To come back to your father. To come back to where you're meant to be. Oh, I say, let's once and forever get rid of these foolish, silly, inadequate notions of Christianity that it's just a little bit better and moral and so on. No, no, it's coming back home. It's leaving the far country. It's a restoration. A restoration to what? Well, primarily a restoration to God. That's the first thing. A restoration to this knowledge concerning God. Did you notice how Paul, writing to those Colossians, says, I thank God for you. And what does he think about? He thanks God for the knowledge they've got. The truth, he says, has been preached to you as it has in the, in the whole world. And you've seen it and you've got it. And I do rejoice to hear it, says Paul. You were heathens, you were ignorant, you didn't know. But now you know. What do you know? You know about God. Who in his great love wherewith he loved us, hath visited us. And has given us the knowledge of himself in the face of his only begotten Son. 
He's shown us his love, his mercy, and his compassion. And we've got a new view of him, the right view, the true view. We are back with him. We know that he delights in pardon and forgiveness. We didn't know it before. We know it now. And we love him and we praise him and we worship him. We are back in relationship to God. The gospel introduces us to God as our Father. Not as a philosophic ex. Not some mighty power away in the distance. But as Father who has loved us with an everlasting love. So much so that he sent his only son to die for us that our sins might be blotted out and forgiven. Oh, what a gospel this is. It brings a man back to God. And coming back to God, of course, we are back in the place of blessing. God doesn't bless his people there in Babylon. It's in Canaan he blesses them. He made it for them. He took them there. He blessed them there. Land flowing with milk and honey. Not Babylon. Canaan, that's the place. Come back, I'll bring you back. And then I'll again shower my blessings upon you. It's all given in the rest of this chapter. What does this gospel give us? Well, it blesses us with all the riches of God's grace. With all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Yea, all I need in thee to find. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Why? Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? Praise him. Back into the place of blessing. Back where he wants us. Back in the place he made for us. That's what salvation is. Back into reconciliation with God as Father. And receiving his blessings without limit. And of course, as an inevitable accompaniment, back out of heathendom and its squalor, and its vileness and its foulness and its filth and its slavery of sin. Back to a holy life. Back to sanctification. Washed, cleansed, renewed. Back to a life in which a man, far from delighting in evil, hungers and thirsts after righteousness, longing to be filled. Back to a life in which a man can say, though I'm still left in this world, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our Back to a life in which the commandments of God are not grievous. But in which we can say, I delight to do thy will. Oh my God. That's salvation. And nothing less than that. This complete change. This knowledge of God, come, let me ask you the question. Do you know God? I'm not asking you if you believe certain things about him. You can do that without being a Christian. Do you know him? Do you know him as your father? Is he blessing you? Are you receiving his blessings day by day? My friends, I can't see that according to the Bible you have any right to regard yourself as a Christian unless those things are true. That is what Christ came to do. To bring us to God. 
to reconcile us to God. To put us in the place where God delights to bless us. Numbers the very hairs of our head. Cares for us with the whole of his being. He is sanctifying us, purifying us, cleansing us, making us meet to be partakers of the inheritance with the saints in light. That's what salvation means. That's what God does by the Holy Spirit. That's the taking us out of heathendom and putting us into our own land, into our own place. Are we there? That's what God does in Christ. He sent his only begotten Son into this world, even to the death of the cross, five, that he might deliver us from all iniquity and separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You can't be taken out of Babylon without being separated. And Christianity separates us from this world and all that it lives for. It's lust, it's loudness, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life and all the things the world thinks so marvelous and wonderful. We are taken out of that to this new realm, to this new life with God which is a foretaste of heaven, which is a preparation of heaven, which is an introduction to heaven. It is to be taken hold of by him and to be led through the sin of this world, led through the river of death and presented faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. Have you been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son? If you have, God bless you. If you haven't, I say, make no tarrying. You're in a dangerous position. You're under the wrath of God. And if you die there, you remain there for all eternity. If you're there, cry out unto him for mercy and for compassion. And he will not reject you. He will take hold of you. And his mighty power will resurrect you. And put you into the kingdom of his dear son.